Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Let's pray. Lord, send the winds, the cool winds. Send your wind. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. This is your house. These are your people. This is your way. This is your agenda. And so we we lay down everything for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week and tonight, I'm going to be laying some foundations for moving forward. I really think this is probably one of the most important nights of the year because it's a night of dedication. I've been reading um, First and Second Chronicles lately, and I've been really stirred by a few things. And in the very last chapter of First Chronicles, it's First Chronicles 29, David, King David, is an old man. He's about to die. And before he dies, he decides to give his son Solomon all of these plans and all of these resources to help Solomon build this temple. And so David calls all Israel together. The whole nation comes together, and he dedicates this future temple to the Lord. And I love the fact that he dedicates a future temple. He doesn't even need to see it. He knows it's coming. It's been promised. And so he makes this this nationwide dedication of a future temple. And in 1 Chronicles 29, David says this phrase. He says, the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. I need you to repeat that after me. Or let's say it together. The temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Last week, tonight, and for the next few weeks after Jonas is here, we're talking about this, this idea of an apostolic house an apostolic house. And and as I was preparing for today, the Lord said to make this the melody for reunion, to give him what he came for, to give him what he came for. And it's more important than making that a catchy phrase or, you know, writing that on the walls. This is actually something that we get to live out, to give him what he came for. And I love that we get to celebrate him as a corporate church, but he actually won't get what he came for corporately unless we give him what he came for individually. Does this make sense? There is no corporate church. Look at your neighbor. Tell him you are the church. Look at all you little church people sitting around. Together you make the church. And it's important that each of us, including myself, give him what he came for. And we've been very clear from the beginning that reunion is God's house. We don't invite him into our sanctuary. We enter into his. This is his house. This is his sanctuary. And we don't give him space in the room. We give him the room. Whatever he wants to do, he gets to do. That's the rules. And when we get together, we're going to give him what he came for. We're going to give him worship. We're going to give him glory. We're going to give him praise. I said this last week twice. This part of the service with the musicians, the the musical side of church, we call it worship, but it's actually a heart posture. The worship is why he comes. I know he can rest on what we're talking about from here, but this is for us. The worship is for him, and we're going to give him what he came for. Are you guys good? I need to hear voices tonight. Pump me up. I've had a really hard day. Thank you. 
I feel pumped. Thank you. Okay. So I've been reading Second Chronicles, and I've been so moved by this theme that keeps coming up. It's this theme of dedication and worship, dedication and worship. And I love that both David, before he died, before the temple was built, and then Solomon, when the temple was built, they gathered all of Israel these two times to make dedications for this upcoming temple. There's actually two dedications one before it was built, and then one when it was in existence. And in both of these instances, there was lavish, extravagant acts of worship. This was not, oh man, I don't know who's in the room. It was lavish. It was extravagant. Think about those two words, lavish and extravagant. And what happened in both of these instances is all the people, all the nobles, the king, David and Solomon, they brought offerings of gold and silver. They would bring all these precious metals beyond anything the world had ever seen. They stockpiled it for the Lord. And then they started to make all these costly offerings. Put this slide up here, 2 Chronicles 5, 6. It says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. I don't know about you. I can count really high. I can number things really high. And this was so lavish and so extravagant that they just stopped. A whole nation said, I, I don't even know how to count this high. Previous to this, David had hired tens of thousands of Levites. And listen to me, this is important. David spent millions of dollars to put prophetic worshipers in the house of the Lord. David spent millions of dollars to put prophetic worshipers in the house of the Lord. And for 33 consecutive years, he had them worship in the tabernacle 24 hours a day, nonstop, around the clock. There was never a moment for 33 years that didn't have extravagant praise happening in the tabernacle. Let me repeat that and, and just say it a little bit differently. David spent millions of dollars for prophetic worshipers to have round-the-clock worship in the tabernacle for the Lord. He hired tens of thousands of musicians, paid millions of dollars to put them in this place. And listen, nobody was going to hear the musicians play except the Lord. They went into the tabernacle, they stood before his presence, they praised, the word is halal, they halaled before the Lord in unending praise. Halal, it's this Hebrew word for praise, it's where we get the word hallelujah, it's the most common word for praise in the Bible, halal, and it means to boast, to rave, to act madly, to be clamorously foolish before the Lord. He hired tens of thousands of prophetic worshipers at the cost of millions of dollars to act clamorously foolish and boast and rave with no one else listening but the Lord. The only person in the room was God. And for over three decades, 
they chose to lavish the Lord with this uninterruption, uninterrupted worship for the sole reason because David was in love with the Lord. No one was getting fame. No one was getting accolades. No one was make, getting likes on Instagram. No one was in the room. And yet, for some reason, David was willing to pay that cost to put them in that room where nobody else would hear them. <clears throat> Love brought David into a place where to stop worshiping would have been more costly than the price he paid to worship. The temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. And again, so David and Solomon have these dedications where they're bringing these precious metals. Literally countless offerings are being sacrificed before the Lord. The Levites come in. They're worshiping the Lord in song. They're, they're shouting of the Lord's loving kindness, it says. They're shouting at the top of their lungs. They're blasting trumpets and lyres and cymbals. And when the whole assembly gets into the presence of the Lord and they're shouting and raving and glorifying the Lord with all their might, it says this happened in 2 Chronicles. Then the house, then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They didn't celebrate because the glory came. They didn't shout and worship for 33 years because God showed up. They shouted and worshiped and act clamorously foolish for 33 years, spending millions of dollars, slaughter countless animals, and then the glory of the Lord shows up. The lavishness at these two dedications was more than enough. It was more than what was sufficient. But because the measure of the offering came from David's heart and not his mind, both David and Solomon decided that expressing love was worth any cost required. Worth any cost required. Say that after me. Worth any cost, cost required. It's worth any cost required. It's worth any cost required. Guys, we have to arrive in a place where we stop counting the sheep, where we stop counting the cows that we're slaughtering and say, I don't care what it costs. It's worth the cost that's required. And I'm here to tell you that there is a cost associated with lavish worship and it's never cheap. And yet it's somehow always worth it. It's always worth it. David and Solomon were not interested in what was required of them. They were interested in giving him what he was worthy of. And it was worth any cost that it required. Worship is about giving. Worship is about giving. Last week, we talked for a little while about the difference between an apostolic church model and a pastoral church model. We're not going to review that. Go listen to the podcast. Go watch the, the Vimeo replay. But I want to say this about that when we talked about these different church models. It's a disservice to teach people that church is about meeting their needs. It's actually a disservice to teach people that worship is about filling them up. 
Now listen, does worship fill you up? Absolutely. When you worship in spirit and truth, he's so good that when we pour into him, he pours back more than we ever could have given him into us. But we don't do it for us. We do it for him. Worship costs. Worship costs. And do you know what the Bible doesn't say? about when the glory of the Lord came into the room, it doesn't say that after the people heard all the songs that they particularly loved, then the glory of the Lord came into the room. The Bible doesn't say that after the people were ministered to, then the glory of the Lord came into the room. The Bible doesn't say that they sat down after the first song because their legs were tired, and then the glory of the Lord came into the room. The the Bible doesn't say the people got what they came for, And then the glory of the Lord came into the room. Worship costs. Worship costs. And it was after they gave him a costly offering that the glory of the Lord filled the house. It's the heart that creates value for expressing love. It's the heart that creates a value for expressing love, not the mind. The mind will ask, how much is enough to show him my affection? But the heart will say, I'll do anything to show him my affection. The mind will say, what does it cost me? But the heart says, I don't care what it costs me. David and Solomon did not give the Lord what he required. They gave him extravagantly more than what he required. In fact, the Lord doesn't require anything from them in those stories. They just decide to do this on their own, and it's overflowing. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable because it went against reason to the point where people should have said, that's enough. That'll do it. That's all he needs. That's all he requires. Just give him that much. Anything more would be wasteful. I'm going to tell you, you can never waste on the Lord. It's never a waste. I don't care if you give him every sheep and every goat and every cow you have. It's never a waste. Stop counting them. It was unreasonable what David and Solomon did. And the reason is because that worship came from their heart and not their mind. Could David and Solomon and Israel give in the Lord a lot less? Could they have killed fewer cows? Probably. Probably. I don't know if the Lord had a number in his mind where he was waiting to see if they hit that number, and then he said, well, I'll come in if they give me that number. God didn't put any demand on those things. They were free to give him whatever they wanted to give him. This is the difference between love and religion. Love is the overflow of the heart. Religion is the overflow of the mind. Love, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. It's endless. It cannot be satisfied. It's lavish. It's excessive. And it's overwhelming. Religion wants to know what the requirements are. Religion wants to know what the bare minimum is so that it doesn't cost me more than it needs to. You can add religion to your life, but you can only become worship. Mary 
comes to Jesus before he's crucified. And she pours this costly perfume all over him. And the, the aroma spreads throughout the house. Everyone in that house, probably even people outside, could smell it. And it offended the disciples because of this costly worship. And they started to say, what is she doing? Jesus, are you going to allow her to waste that expensive perfume? We could have sold that and given that to the poor. Did Jesus then thank them for their insight, clean up the broken bottle and try to salvage any of the perfume and sell it to the poor? No, he said, leave her alone. Stop counting the cost. This is such a beautiful act that anytime people talk about me, they're going to talk about this event. This is what my heart desires. The spirit of religion idolizes the mind over the heart. And because the religious spirit does not have love, it does not assign value to expressions of love. God is supernatural. There is nothing about him that isn't supernatural. Every part of him is supernatural. And 1 John tells us that God is love. That means that love is supernatural. Worship is based in love, and it requires a supernatural transformation through the mind. Romans 12, 2. Otherwise, if we don't have that supernatural transformation of our minds, the natural mind is going to start to reassess and undermine the true value of worship. That's wasteful. That's too many cows. We don't need to kill all those. Let's save a few thousand. That perfume, that, that cost everything. We don't need to waste all that perfume. Let's just waste a little bit of it. He's a supernatural God. He renews our minds through the transformation, through the renewal of our minds. And we have to have supernatural thinking. Super, natural thinking puts the church out of order. Supernatural thinking brings the church into order. And listen, we will give him what he came for. The older I get, the more I realize how precious life is. It's true when people say that, and I realize more and more the importance of each and every decision that I make. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I, I run a, a school. No, it, it, the importance is because I'm a human being. You have the same importance attached to every single one of your decisions that I do attached to mine. And someday, I'm gonna stand before the judge and he's going to reward me for how I stewarded what he placed in my hands. I won't be rewarded for what I wished I would have done. I will be rewarded for what I did. And I decided at a very young age that to the best of my ability, I'm going to choose to pay the cost now for right decisions. In other words, I would rather it cost me now than cost me later. I don't want it to cost me later. And so again, we've said this no less than a dozen times over the past year, but this is a heart's cry. This is, we're walking from Dillard's to Macy's and I need you to understand why we're on this journey. We say this over and over, find out whatever the Lord is doing in your generation and give your whole life to it. Give your whole life to it. Over and over in the Bible, people are rewarded for keeping their gaze solely on the Lord. They are rewarded, they are commended. 
the flip side is that over and over in the Bible, people are reprimanded for losing sight of God. They're reprimanded for staying in places that God is no longer at. They're actually reprimanded for continuing to live and to serve in places that God abandoned years ago. Scripturally, people are reprimanded for not being aware that God is doing a new thing. People, scripturally, people are reprimanded for not joining in what he is currently doing. Old Testament and New Testament. And saying, well, I didn't know, is not a valid excuse when you're standing in front of the judge. He has given us every tool and every spiritual gift to bring that discernment into our lives. And listen, even if you struggle with it and say, I don't know what he's doing on this planet, he has given gifts to men, Ephesians 4 says, to help us find him, to prophetically hear from the Lord, because God actually doesn't do anything without telling us. In Amos, it says, surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. He does nothing without revealing it first to the prophets. Find out whatever the Lord is doing in your generation and give your whole life to it. I don't know what he's doing. Start listening to some prophets. They'll help you. And honestly, when we're standing before him, what excuse can we possibly come up with for not finding out what he was doing while we were here? He's not hiding what he's doing from us. He's he's hiding it for us. He wants us to discover it. It's actually, it brings him glory. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out, Proverbs 25, 2. It's to his glory to hide it for you, and it's to your glory to find out and to walk in those things. And listen, once we find out what he's doing on the planet, and we've talked about a lot of these things on Sunday nights. We've talked about them at Kingdom Living. What possible excuse can we give him for not giving our whole life to those things? If he's doing something and he's saying, are you not aware? Do you not perceive that I'm doing a new thing? What excuse can we say? Well, I saw you were doing this, but I wanted to do that. That's not going to get you much of a reward when you're standing in front of him. That's probably going to cost you. I, had, uh, I have a team at our church. In my phone, they're programmed as the Pray for Sam team. Uh, This is a group who um, prays for me regularly. I send them um, thoughts, things that I need covering for, and I was sending them a message today. This is actually a really, really hard um, message I'm giving tonight. I've been sitting on this for months, and I think that if I waited any longer, I'd be sitting on disobedience by not sharing it. And I don't necessarily even know if it's for people in the room. In fact, as I was thinking about this, um, the Lord said that there are people um, listening online on the mainland, listening to our podcast, watching us online, who this is actually for you, and you need permission to hear this. But I also know in my heart that there's very, very likely people in this room who are going to need to hear what I'm about to say. I think that God is actually asking some of you who are hearing my voice, God is asking you, are you still willing to plant yourself someplace that I'm not? Are you still willing to plant yourself someplace that I'm not? In 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in Moses' tabernacle. It's, It's the resting place of God. And the Philistines come and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. 
And it's this, it's this long um, few chapters that talks about all the ups and downs of this wild story. And David finally decides that he's going to go get the ark. And he, he leads his conquest. He gets the ark and he recaptures it. And he brings it back to the city of David. Well, here's the thing about that story. When David went and got the ark, technically, he was supposed to return it to Moses' tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle, even after the ark was taken, was still in existence. It was fully functioning. The priests continued to serve in it. They had all the religious fanfare still going on. They had all the ceremony and all the duties were being fulfilled. So on paper, when David goes and gets the ark, it made a lot more sense. It was a way better option to bring that ark back to Moses' tabernacle than to do what David did, which was go and build a three-sided tent to put it in. Moses' tabernacle was a beautiful facility. It was state-of-the-art. It was, it was so state-of-the-art, it had full-time staff. It was, it was plated with gold and precious metals everywhere. Uh, it, was, it was worth about $6 billion by today's standards. The Dallas Cowboys Stadium cost $1 billion, if that puts anything into perspective. So I think it's SoFi Field in um, LA that they just built, it's about a billion dollars. So imagine six of those, six of those. Moses' tabernacle was the place that worshipers were supposed to go to. That was supposed to be the resting place of the ark, except that God was no longer there. Do you understand, the temple was still fully functional. They just didn't have the presence of God any longer. The four walls were still there, but the fire and the cloud were now gone. The priests were still ministering. They were still doing their washings. They were still wearing the robes, but the one they were worshiping wasn't there. God decided to forego the perfect facilities for a three-sided tent. God decided to forego professional ministers and priests for a man who is after his heart. For the past few weeks, it's such a weird thing to get hung up on, but I, can't, I couldn't stop thinking about the priests who were serving in Moses' tabernacle, his empty tabernacle, after the ark was taken away. They were giving their lives, they were giving all of their energy towards something that once had life and now was lifeless. There was nothing left in it. And I've been thinking about them and the question that keeps coming up is, did those priests know that God was gone? Did they realize that he wasn't there? Had they recognized that the Lord was not in the tabernacle any longer? And I began to wonder about that and think, which is worse, being aware that he's gone or being unaware that he's gone? And which is worse, not recognizing that the one they're worshiping isn't there or recognizing that the one that they're worshiping isn't there? If they recognized that he wasn't there, why did they stay? Why did they stay? It made me... uh, (laughs) It's such a strange thing to get sad over, but I was so sad. I was actually grieved thinking about this. These guys giving their whole lives to this structure that didn't host the one that it was supposed to be serving. 
And I felt like the Lord stirred my heart and say, never learn to settle for an environment that the king has left. Never learn to settle for an environment that the king has left. I've been sitting on this for two months. It's hard, it's, but people need permission to hear this. We love the thought of leaving everything behind to follow Jesus until it requires us to leave everything behind. And we almost romanticize this thought of the costliness of following Jesus and being willing to give him everything until it costs us everything to be with him. It sounds great. It sounds so cool. It sounds like, oh yeah, I'm willing to do that. And then you lose everything. Or you have the option of losing everything to follow him. And let me tell you, Jesus understood the cost of following him. He spoke about it often, and he often commended those who would fight through crowds and who left everything to, to follow him. I want to read a passage out of Mark chapter 10. It says, Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he would receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot and how this relates to those, those priests in Moses' abandoned tabernacle. And one of the things I've been thinking about is why so many people at reunion tell us that they have just such tremendous breakthrough. And why so many of our students at Kingdom Living come and tell us this is the greatest thing I've ever done. I've had such tremendous breakthrough. And the answer I keep landing on that, I keep coming back to is because they were willing to pay a cost to follow him. They were willing to pay the cost. It costs something to follow him. And Jesus is very aware of it. We never will settle for an environment that the king has left. It's not worth it, right? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. There's only one thing that has eternal worth in this life. And if we choose to live in a place where the fullness of the manifestation of God is absent, then, it's, then we're operating in a place that's less than what's available. I don't want to step foot in the empty tabernacle asking, where's the cloud? Where's the pillar of fire? Where did he go? And I want to tell you that there will never be an excuse for not following him. And I don't mean following him meaning becoming a Christian. I'm talking about after we're saved, after we're believers, there's never an excuse for not following him. And if the bride decides that she's okay living in a place where week after week she survives without needing the bridegroom, then we need to find a new place to worship. If I said to you, I will follow God to the best of my ability. Probably everybody in here would say, yes, Sam, amen, good, good statement. And yet I know so many people who live and breathe and work and worship in a tabernacle that is devoid of life, and they stay because of the pressure of man to stay. 
It would be the greatest loss to go through life controlled by the wants and the desires of man. The Bible tells us that following the Spirit is actually a sign of maturity. Following the Spirit is actually a sign of wisdom. And following the Spirit is a sign of sonship. Following the Spirit is a sign of maturity, wisdom, and sonship. But following man is the opposite. It's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of fear. And it's a sign of being an orphan. It's easy to say, I'll follow him wherever he is. It's much harder to follow through. And Jesus knew the, the, the cost of following him. That's the whole point of that conversation with Peter. I've had people tell me, and again, I feel on my heart so strongly, there's people many miles away but who are listening to this. You have to hear this. There's probably people in this room. I've had so many people tell me that they are drained by their church, that it's dead, that it's lifeless, essentially that it's Moses' abandoned tabernacle. And yet, what they say is, I cannot leave there, my family is there. I cannot leave there, I was raised in that church. I cannot leave there, I'm the pastor of that church. There were priests, pastors of that tabernacle who stayed. And Jesus literally makes this exact point to Peter, whenever, or when, when, when we follow Jesus, it will probably cost us our farm, our house, our brothers, our sisters, our mother, our father, but he will always pay back a hundred times fold than the price that we paid. And listen, not in the sweet by and by, not in eternity. He says now in the present age, in this life, he's going to pay that back. And he specifically says to Peter, he refers to family. He specifically says, I know that following me was, is probably going to cost some of you your family. It will cost you family members, but I'll repay you. I'll repay you a hundred times over. There are many people even sitting in this room where following Jesus has cost you mothers, it's cost you fathers, it's cost you your sisters and your brothers, it's cost you your households, it's cost you your livelihood to follow the Lord. I know people whose entire family trees have turned against them for following the cloud, for going where Jesus has gone and saying no to places that he's actually left the building. And listen, Jesus is very aware of the cost of following him. He actually says, and persecutions will come. He says, I know this is going to hurt. Those mothers, those fathers, those brothers, those sisters, they will persecute you. Don't worry. I'll pay you back a hundredfold, whatever it costs you. Old wineskins cannot handle new wine. This is tough, this is tough, but this is the Lord speaking. Like he literally wrote this in the book. He wrote this in scripture. God designed, we spent months in 2022 and a little bit last week talking about God's design, God's ways. His designs, his ways, they work. If he designs it, it works, it succeeds. God designed old wineskins to burst and to fail when new wine comes. That's his design. That's not the enemy's plans. That's God's plan. Many times, people will stay and dwell in Moses' abandoned tabernacle 
for loyalty, sometimes for fear. But I don't want to sell people short. I know people. I personally know people. And I, I can even say I've done this. I know people who, in hoping to create this secret underground subculture of revival within a church, will stay long past their expect, or the, the, the expiration date of when they were supposed to stay at that place. And what they'll do is they'll try to have this mini revival in our home groups or in our prayer meetings and this mini move of God that even though it doesn't fit the DNA of that church or that leader, they'll still try to make that happen. Don't, don't raise your hand. Raise the hand of your heart. But how many of you have done that? How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Well, listen, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, Almost never will you find instances in the Bible where a leader refused to follow God or the ways of God, and then a faithful few came in and started a move of God. Almost never will you find two to three people who start a grassroots revival that leads to a revival in Ephesus or Damascus or whatever. You don't find that. And listen, I am the first person to tell you that God loves to breathe life into dead bones. He is, that's who he is. He brings life into dead things. But it almost always comes through the leaders scripturally. And when you tr take an attitude of, our church doesn't want to move God, we're not open to revival, but we're going to start one in our little home group, what happens is that kind of an attitude produces flatheads. Do you know who, what flatheads are? I heard this last week. A flathead is somebody who has a flat head because they keep constantly hitting the ceiling of the church that they're in. They're flatheads. When creating revival or creating a move of God or being open to a move of God runs contrary to the heart of the leader, it often creates in the heart of those people an unintentional heart of rebellion towards that leader. And I said this last week, God does not breathe on rebellion. I don't care if it comes from a good place. He won't do it. We are called to serve at our churches. We are called to serve our leaders. We are called to care and pray for them. And I hear people say, we're spirit missionaries at our church. And we're going to get other people involved until the whole church catches on fire. And I'll ask them, like, okay, have you told that to your pastor? And they're like, no way. He'd shut it down. Well, listen, if your entire purpose for being at a church runs contrary to the spiritual leaders in your life... God calls that rebellion. You're not helping anybody. That's hard for us to hear who are interested in a move of God, who want our, our dry bones neighbors to have life breathed into them. But you will not bring re revival through rebellion. God does not move through rebellion. God does not move through rebellion. And biblically speaking, a move of God from Genesis to Revelation, 99.9% .9 of the time, it depended on the heart of the leader. Did others influence leaders in the Bible? Absolutely. But it wasn't until the leader turned his heart that the hand of the Lord and the move of God happened. Almost always, the people of God only got to experience his outpouring, his blessing, his favor, the miraculous hand of God when the move of God was instigated and maintained by the leader. That's hard. That's hard to hear. I've been a sp spirit missionary in places for years in my life. I don't know if you can tell, my head is just now rounding again. 
And I need to say this because people are going to say, they're, in the one year that I've been senior pastor, I've had more people tell me things I've never said. And they said, I heard when you said from the pulpit, and it's like, I'll go back, I'll re-listen to those talks. It's not even close to that. So I, I need to just say this. Gary, you know you've had this for decades. People are like, oh, well, Gary, when you said this, and you think you weren't paying attention clearly. So I need to say this because people are gonna run the wrong way with this topic. If you are in a dead tabernacle and the Lord is telling you to stay, stay. If you are in a valley of the dry bones and he is telling you, do not leave the valley of dry bones, stay in the valley of dry bones, it would actually be rebellion for you to go elsewhere. It might be easier, but it would be rebellion. However, however, and again, I'm just going to let you know what Jesus said about these things. If you are stuck in an environment that's an old wineskin, do not pray for new wine. If you're in an old wineskin, don't pray for new wine. What happens to old wineskins when new wine comes? It bursts. It shatters. God designs it to not be able to handle new wine. He loves you, but you're not that special. Your prayer will not overturn the spiritual principle in this way that God has designed things. God's design is not for new wine to go into old wineskins. If you are in an environment that is locked in an old wineskin, do not pray for new wine. Pray for new wineskins. Pray for a new wineskin. You can, through, through a process, you can actually turn old wineskins into new wineskins. It's a lengthy process, but it's possible. Just don't pray for new wine, because you might get it. And Jesus said, that's a bad thing. If you ask for it, it's, it's going to break what's there. And I don't think that God is in the business of enjoying when an old wineskin is devastated and splits. If you're in an environment that's an old wineskin, pray for new wineskins. Change your prayer. Bless your leader. Don't pray for secret revival. Don't be secret revival. You, you're a Christian. You are a little Christ. That's what the word means. You, rep, you represent him to the world. You don't need to have this cool little hip thing called revival. You are a walking revival everywhere you go, okay? Bless your leaders. Love your leaders. But if you are in a place that purposefully puts out fires and the Lord hasn't said that you need to stay there, don't stay there. You, you're not going to get brownie points. Those priests in Moses' dead tabernacle were not answering the call of the Lord. If he's calling you to stay, stay. But if he's calling you to leave, leave. If your leader is not open to God moving, it would actually be rebellion for you to stay and try to get God to move. We need to plant ourselves where we're not contending for something different where we're in full agreement, where we can covenant with family so that there is room for disagreement because disagreement isn't dishonor. Put yourself in an environment where you can contend with your leader, not against them. God doesn't move through rebellion. So we're gonna, we're gonna go into a, a time of some corporate ministry 
We will have our normal prayer ministry where we'll open the front and have everybody who wants prayer come up. We'll have prayer ministers praying for you guys for any reason whatsoever. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you need to make him that and enthrone him in your life tonight, do that. If you need healing in your body, we're going to pray for that. We're going to see bodies get healed. If you have family trauma, if you have things in your heart that aren't right and you need to get them right with the Lord, that's what we're, we're going to go after. But before we do that, we're going to have some corporate time before we dismiss. We're going to have some dedication to the Lord tonight. We're going to do this corporately, but we're going to do this individually as well. In, in both First and Second Chronicles, it was the leader of the nation, David, Solomon, that led Israel in the dedication of the house of the Lord. And they directed their own hearts and they directed the hearts of the people to the one thing that is most valuable. Twenty twenty three, I really believe, is a year of favor for reunion. The following few weeks, we're going to be sharing with you guys the things that he's asking us to launch, some of the things that he's asking us to pioneer, things that he's asking us to partner with others with, uh, things that we're going to give you to lay hold of and run with. But we're not going to do any of that without first giving it to him. And we're not going to attach our hearts to anything before we attach our hearts to him first. And so I'm going to read you a passage out of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And we're going to turn this into a prayer. Actually, I'm going to read two passages, one out of 2 Chronicles and one out of Proverbs. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer of dedication based on these verses. You don't have anything that you have to do except join in with your heart. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All of the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. Before we attach our hearts to a single thing, back up one slide. It says they, that the, the fire came down and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. The things that we're going to be doing at reunion, this is the, the offering and the sacrifices that he's going to come burn. Not in a bad way, but he will purify these things. He will make sure that whatever it is that we're giving to him is purified before his eyes. That it will consecrate what we do before him. We're going to pray that in just a minute. I also want to read to you Proverbs chapter 24. So Solomon, the wisest man in history outside of Jesus, the man who built this second temple for the Lord, this is who's speaking. He says, by wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established, and by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all the precious and pleasant riches. Join me in prayer. This is what we're praying. Lord, give us wisdom to build this house. 
We will not build a single thing without your hand directing it. We will not put a single brick on top of another brick without you leading the way, without your blueprint, without your architectural structure. By wisdom, a house is built. So Lord, give us wisdom to build this house. And I want to tell you, I'm speaking this prophetically over you. He is speaking about a house of the Lord. But guess what? In the new covenant, you are the house of the Lord. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. By wisdom, this house, you are built. So Lord, give us wisdom to build this house. And by understanding, it is established. Lord, give us understanding to establish reunion. We do not want our name to be famous. We do not want our glory to shine. We want your name to be famous. We want your glory to shine. We want your glory to spread and become famous across Oahu in this nation. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So Father, give us knowledge to fill the rooms of this house with precious and pleasant riches. And I need to tell you, yes, that includes money, but he's not talking about money. Pleasant and precious riches are more than finances. It's the things of God. It's the things of God. It's people. It's lives. It's the fruit. It's the things that he promises. It's his answer yes over all of his promises. These are the pleasant, precious promises. The precious, pleasant riches that he has stored up for us in heavenly places. God, give us knowledge so that our rooms are filled with those things. And God, just like Solomon prayed at that consecration, at that dedication, God, give us fire that comes down from heaven, that the glory of the Lord comes down and consumes this house. Every offering, every sacrifice, that you would consume it. That it would be a sweet aroma to you. That it would cause people to bow down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and worship and give praise to you, Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. And just like David, who in 1 Chronicles 29 says, who is willing to consecrate consecrate themselves for the Lord today? I am asking you, reunion, no one's looking around. This is between you and the Lord, but you need to answer this either verbally or with your hand or do something. He needs a step of faith. But who in this room is willing to consecrate themselves today for the glory of the Lord? It has to be us. Choose us, God. Choose me. And so David blessed the Lord in the sight of all of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God. O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth, yours is the dominion. O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. God, make make us a people whose hunger is so great that it attracts heaven. It attracts the attention of heaven. Take whatever you want. 
shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. Make us a house of glory. Make us a house of your glory. That this would be a house known for healing. Body, soul, mind, emotions. This would be a house of prosperity. This would be a house of health, of wellness, because that's, that's what the word salvation means, is sozo, soteria. That this would be a house of forgiveness. That this would be a house where the kingdom culture shines. Not man's culture, kingdom culture. That this is a house where your kingdom comes. That your will is done on Oahu as it is in heaven, God. We call forth the things in heaven. We call them forth in this, in this place. We call them forth in our temple. Holy Spirit, we're your temple. Purify us. Where we've tried to hang a veil, Lord, rip it in two. Where there is sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where there are chains, break those strongholds. God, we will give you what you came for. We will prioritize you. We proclaim that we're your bride, you're our bridegroom, and nothing competes, nothing competes with that. Everything comes second to that. So Father, this is your house, these are your people. You said that you, you said that you wouldn't share your glory with another. but we're not another. We're your beloved. So Spirit and the bride say, come. Come for your lovesick ones. Let the oil of gladness fall in this house. Purify what you're doing, God. Refine what you're doing tonight. He said he wouldn't share his glory with another. And over and over, he tells us that we're not another. Can, it, can you stand with me just for a minute and I'm going to dismiss. But I want to put this on our lips. That he says we're not another. And so we're, we're just going to look him in the eyes. We're going to turn our hearts to him. And I want you to repeat after me. We're just going to say this as a house. God, we are not another. God, I'm your beloved. Tell him again, I'm your beloved. I'm your lovesick one. And he responds to that. He responds to his promise over us. He responds to the things that he said is true. And so as, as a house, as a, a tabernacle filled with the glory of the Lord, filled with the splendor of the Lord, we just proclaim and we dedicate this year as a year of the Lord, that this is the year of the Lord's favor, that this is his house, and his glory won't shine on another, that he loves his whole bride, that we're gonna stand for the whole bride, that we're gonna hold hands with the whole bride, 
And he's going to pour out that joy, that oil of unity that only comes when we're willing to be that. So bless what you're doing here, Lord. I love you. I, I bless you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. We're going to open the front. If you need prayer for anything in your life, don't wait. Don't miss out. Don't come later. Don't wait till you go home. This is it. If he's here, we're going to pursue him. If he's walking by, we will grab the hem of his garment. If you need to go, we bless you. We're going to ask that you just maintain this environment as a place for his agenda and his glory. If you want to hang out and meet people, please go outside and do that. Don't forget your kids in kids' church, and we'll see you next week. Ministry team, if you want to come up to the front. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.